Hello, everybody, and welcome to Paleo Party, uh, hosted by Doctors Dean Dunn and Clements. So um, I'm very pleased to announce that we have a very special guest today uh, for our interactive podcast. All the way from Ghent, Belgium, currently, we have a kayak paddling, swing dancing, Cambrian climate expert. It's Dr. Thomas Wong hearing everybody. Oh. <laughs> now we're asking all of our guests to attempt to explain their research using the Opgore 5 text editor, which only allows you to use the 1000 most commonly used words in English. Obviously, this is a bit extreme, but it is excessively fun. And I believe Tom has prepared one for us today. Would you like to take it away, Tom? I have indeed. Thank you, Emma. Um, I th this was a really interesting exercise. I hope we can talk about it a little bit after this. So, my upgoer five. I look at the really, really very old, hot, cold and wet, dry fields of the world. I do this in two ways. First, I use the hard bits of small dead animals that we find in rocks. When animals in water grow hard bits, the stuff those hard bits are made of uh, writes and saves the hot, cold and wet, dry fields of the water that, it, that they grew in. <laughs> find these old dead hard bits, break them down and read the hot, cold, wet, dry fields of the world they live in. <laughs> the second thing I do is use big computers to make good guesses about the really very old hot, cold and wet, dry fields of the world. We can see how different these computer guesses are from the fields that are saved in rocks and in the hard parts of small dead animals. Uh, to work out which guesses are best. This means that we can better understand really, really very old, hot, cold, wet, dry fields of the world. <laughs> hot, cold, wet, dry fields. I tried but weren't allowed. I mean, uh, what I would like to say at this point for our podcast listeners that can't see what's happening on the Twitch live stream. But basically, while Tom was telling us his upgrade five, all three of us were literally dying. <laughs> That's amazing. Hot, what wet, hot, cold feels is yeah, right. Feels. So I think this is going to be our new green snaps thing. <laughs> <laughs> that was great. <laughs> can, you, can you explain it with words that you can actually use? I think I, think I know where you're going. Yeah, just can you explain yourself? <laughs> we'll try. So, first of all, some words that I wasn't allowed to use were things like climate and weather. That makes it quite difficult to talk about, well, climate or weather. <laughs> <laughs> the first indications that there were going to be problems with this, well, I started putting in, okay, so I look at Cambrian things. Obviously, Cambrian's not going to be in there, but that's about 540 to 485 million years ago. Million. Millions not in there. <laughs> <laughs> then I started panicking and just went right, all out the window. See, let's start from scratch. So I try to use various techniques to work out what really ancient climate was like. Cambrian worlds you might be familiar with from things like the Cambrian explosion, which is when animals diversified throughout Earth's uh, oceans. And this happened between about 540 and 500-ish million years ago, though you can sort of argue the, the start and end dates of it and the rates of it and all of that. Um, now, we can use some, as it were, more recent techniques to try and understand these ancient climates. So one of those is a thing called the stable oxygen isotope ratio, which I can explain a bit. It's the ratio between heavy isotopes of oxygen and light isotopes of oxygen, 18 and 16 in this case, has a relationship to temperature when it changes from one phase, one part to another. So when um, an animal takes in oxygen and then precipitates it to make a shell in seawater, the temperature of, that, of the seawater affects the oxygen isotope ratio of the shell. 
if you can measure the oxygen isotope ratio, you can back calculate the temperature out of that. So hot, cold fields of the world from small hard bits of dead animals comes out uh, hopefully with something resembling an ocean temperature estimate. Cool. That's pretty amazing, yeah. Yeah, nice. <laughs> uh, it, it nicely tied back in there, actually. <laughs> I thought I had to somehow. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you mentioned that the Cambrian is obviously incredibly old. We're talking about 500 million years. And one thing I always try to do when I'm talking to children about paleontology or geology in general is try to conceptualise quite how long that is. And what I normally go to I'll tell you in a second, but I'd like you to share your, like, how do you conceptualize this? Like, what, what do you use to say a very long time ago when people are like, yeah, but how long? So I find it really, really hard to convey just how long ago this is. I still don't, I don't think I get my head around it properly. I really don't. It's just, it's such a big number. I don't think I'll ever manage to do it properly. You just sort of let the slow down your thinking, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. One uh, thing that at the back of the envelope calculation or a poster note mm, calculation that I currently mm. have that I tried to use is that if you were to count seconds, so one, two, three, and you were to count a million seconds, it would take you 11 and a half days. But if you were to count half a billion seconds, which is almost as long as how, the, how far back the Cambrian is, it would take you 15 and three quarter years. So pretty long time. Um, wow. I, I believe Thomas has some other calculations that he might want to share or he now he's embarrassed about. Well, <laughs> basically, okay, a little bit of a backstory. So basically this weekend, I took part in the Lyme Regis Fossil Festival, which was a virtual fossil festival. And I made an analogy to how many million years ago the Cambrian was and I said that if you stacked 550 uh, million 1p pieces on top of each other it would stretch um, I think I said erroneously I would like to point out to the moon and back it act the actual correct thing is if you stacked 1p pieces on top of each other one for every year to 550 million years from New York to San Francisco and then back again is how far it would stretch. But then when Emma and I were talking about this earlier, Emma was like, that doesn't really help because, you know, what does that even mean? So then I decided to try and work out the weight of that. And it's like <laughs> 1,900 and something tons. And then Emma was like, I don't work in tons. So I foolishly <laughs> said that that's 1,900 and something African elephants, because they roughly weigh a ton, give or take, plus or minus some. To which Emma said, how many elephants are there left? So I said 415,000 <laughs> elephants, which means that like around about one or 2% of all living elephants in 1p weight is what we're talking about here. This is the Cambrian. To the Cambrian. <laughs> that, that definitely helps clarify things. I've got another elephant <laughs> uh, calculation that might help in this. If, if, please, please, please share. Anything is better than what I just currently spout. <laughs> well, so African elephants live around about 60 to 70 years. So if you take the average of that, 65, um, it would take, you could count back to the start of the Cambrian period, about 8.3 million African element, elephant lifespans. That, that, is, a that is much better. Yeah. <laughs> Well, like, while we're talking about that, the opposite is true, or so I think, in, like, the vastness of geological time is so big. But I like to flip it the other way sometimes, because if you talk to kids or, or people about our research, and you say to them, like, when in human history was a long time ago, you know, people say, oh, you know, the Second World War was a long time ago. Well, that was only two generations ago. And then if you talk about the First World War, that's like three or four generations ago. And if you talk about like the medieval time, you're talking about like 50 generations, which isn't that many generations. Like, well, you know, it wouldn't be more than that, wouldn't it? It would be about like 100 generations off. But then if you go, if you work out that a, a human generation is about what every 20 years, give or take, 
that means there's only been like 7,500 generations since human beings evolved. Which is, that is a very interesting way to put it. That's right. a trippy Not way of thinking about it, right? Yeah, that's good. I approve. So anyway, the Cambrian is pretty mental. It's a long, long time ago. <laughs> but my question, Tom, is why do you work on the Cambrian? What is important about 550 million years ago? Why I work on it and why it's important might be two different things. I okay, think. well, give, give us, tell us why it's important and then tell us why you work on it. Yeah, okay. So it's important because it's the time that the animal-rich ecosystems that we see in the world's oceans today started to develop and to evolve on Earth's surface. Now they're not, they would have looked very, very different to you know, going and swimming off the Great Barrier Reef or something. Um, but they were animal dominated and animals moving around. And you had interesting tier, uh, sort of tiering um, structures building up. So you have things living at different levels in the water column and things building structures, um, reefs, but not as we know them, not in the same, exactly the same way as coral reefs, but reefs nonetheless. Um, you have a few things swimming around, you'd have things crawling along and burrowing under the sediment. And it's when all that started to really take off in a big way. And that in itself was a massive bout of sort of earth system engineering, because until that point, things were relatively static. There were a few things crawling around, there were things moving on a scale of a few millimetres maybe, maybe a little bit more than that um, under sediment. But it's not until you get to the Cambrian explosion, that you start to see these really big changes in how life interacts, and well, animal life in particular, interacts with the, the rest of the earth, the sort of solid abiotic earth, if you like. Um, so I guess one of the reasons that it's important to understand what's going on in the global, in global environments and global climate at this time. The reason I do it is essentially just because I find it really fun. Um, it's, there's a whole load of really big questions to, that we can ask about it. And we can ask those questions of scale because it's harder to get the detail. There's less rock available the further back in time you go and you need the rock to be able to study what was happening on Earth at that point. Um, there are fewer lines of evidence because a lot more can happen to a rock over 500 million years than it can over 5 million years. And so you end up having a bit of one sort of evidence from over here, a bit of another sort of evidence from over there and how you tie all that together. You have to do on a really, uh, you have to have an element of sort of big scale thinking for where that comes in. And I really enjoy that sort of stuff. Yeah. I think the thing that always fascinates me with that kind of aspect of the Cambrian is that, well, there's like this there's a thing in paleontology of um the law of uniformitarianism uh geology paleontology of like the present is the key to the past if we can see things happening today we can understand when we see them in, in the fossil record we can understand what they're doing but the, the cambrian completely blows that apart because you're so far back in time so many elephants back in time <laughs> that uh you, you can't really compare the, the, the world as it is today and what we see operating in the world today to what, what, how we see it in the past. And that has always blown my mind as like as something to grapple with as a paleontologist. It must be so challenging and interesting. Um, and yeah, I, I don't know, that's more of a general statement rather than a question, but I, yeah, if you have anything you wanna add on that, then please go ahead. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's a really good statement, but I'm also not sure how true it is. I mean, Ooh. on some controversy. Well, yeah. You see, some 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 processes, some things completely different. Um, there were no plants around, no well, no vascular plants certainly. And so, what was Earth's sort of terrestrial surface like? How that operated? Completely different to the way that it operates today. And uh, Tom, yeah. what Tom, what Tom means, sorry to interrupt you, what Tom means there sorry, is that yes. on the land, on the land, there were no plants, yeah. which means yep. that because there were no plants, there was no soil. So pretty, pretty sparse and rocky. Probably. <laughs> Probably. 
Terms and conditions apply. Exactly, yes. <laughs> All rights reserved. Um, so some, some things were very different, but then actually, if you were to find a bit of Earth's surface today and recreate that sort of environment, you could run a river through it and you would end up with a nice big braided river system operating in much the same way. So although there are some things that are wildly different, the fundamental sort of physical, chemical, biological processes are still the same, but then just depends on what scale you're looking at. And it's the importance of judging where on that scale of, yeah, where on the scale of interactions you're looking. Which, yeah, makes it really interesting. Um, so I was just going to jump in and quickly say, remind everyone that we are live on Twitch. Sorry, podcast listeners. Um, that, podcast, that means... podcast listeners, come to Twitch. <clears throat> come, it's come. Come. Uh, we can ask us any questions. Send them in. Tom will gladly answer anything you can throw at him, I'm sure. Um, from paleo, paleo chat to miscellaneous chat. So if you have any questions for any of us, especially Tom, please send them in either to our Twitch chats or to our Twitter handle, which is at Paleo Party. And that's it. Yeah. <laughs> so there you go. So I have a quick, quick question for you, Tom. Is So you talked a little bit about um, that there are less rocks from the camera. Mm. Why, why are there less rocks? So... It's not just true for the Cambrian, it's a sort of general rule going back through geological time. The longer something's been sitting at Earth's surface or been in various Earth processes, the longer it's had to be somehow reworked. So if you think of a, a nice sandy beach, this is the great thing about geology and the whole uniformitarian thing actually, is that you can still think about a lot of these processes that are going on today happening way back when. And the rates might change, the exact ways that they happen might change, but you can still think about the processes as, as they were happening. So you think about a nice sandy beach, and then water level rises, sea level rises, and that sandy beach gets covered in some layers of mudstone, or some mud, and over geological time, that all becomes stone. So you end up with a sandstone and a mudstone. The longer that is sitting there, at or near Earth's surface, the, long, the more likely it is to be exposed to changing sea level. So if sea level drops again, it could all get washed away. Um, if, it, if sea level keeps rising, then it might get buried. If it's offshore, it might, if it's on ocean crust, it might eventually get subducted and lost. Um, there's a whole host of processes that can remove rock from the rock record and the longer those rocks are sitting around, the more likely they are to be subjected to one of those loss processes. And once it's lost, you can't get it back again. Mm. It? Certainly not in its original form. It's like recycling. Yeah, like recycling, exactly. <laughs> Much more succinct. <laughs> I like it. And then, so once you've got these rocks, what do you, these Cambrian rocks, what do you do with them? <laughs> so this was another thing that I came up against in Upgoer 5. So dissolve, fair enough, that's not in there. Fizz, you can't say you fizz things. I don't think fizz thing. is a very common word. Yeah, I thought so. snap was, so... Yeah, true, I would class fizz and snap in a pretty similar Cocoa Pops right? Right category. <laughs> <laughs> and pop. Uh, other cereals are available. <laughs> 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 Sorry, Tom, please continue. Yeah, please continue. Please continue. <laughs> so I tend to look for um, uh, fossils that have got phosphatic skeletons. So that's uh, made of calcium phosphate, similar to our teeth and bones. Um, but the things I look at weren't vertebrates. They were a whole host of other animals. We can loosely call them small shelly fossils, which perfectly describes what they are and there's a nice little shorthand for a whole collection of interesting things. Um, in the Cambrian, you find a whole range of uh, what we call skeletal elements. So shelly bits that would have made up a whole shelly organism um, of its own right, which when the organism dies and all the soft tissues decay away, 
the little bits of shell are just scattered to the four, well, four tides, I guess, rather than four winds, if you can say such a thing. Um, and we find those quite well in limestones, either because they quite like living in limestones or just because limestones are much easier to process in the lab. So we can get limestones, which we think have these in, and then we fizz them up. Uh, in, we use a thing called acetic acid, which is essentially very strong vinegar, puts you off your fish and chips for a while, um, stinks out a whole lab for quite a while. Um, and this process does take, you know, a couple of weeks to a couple of months, depending on the size and the amount of limestone you've got. So it really does stink out the lab. Um, the acid dissolves the calcium carbonate of the limestone, leaves you with the insoluble bits, which include these small shelly fossils. And you then spend quite a few hours sitting with a microscope and a little paintbrush. And you just try and pick out tiny, tiny little things. We're talking up to a millimeter, maybe a couple of millimeters in size if you're really lucky, more often about half a millimeter. That's challenging. That sounds hellish. So what do you do to keep yourself entertained? Do you use it like podcasts? Is it music? He listens to Paleo Party, obviously. <laughs> As should everyone in the lab, surely. Um, <laughs> yeah, podcasts, music, um, audiobooks were good when I was going through long stints of this. Um, it's quite good if you've got other stuff to do because it's work. Um, but it's essentially fossil hunting. And it's fossil hunting just sitting still and picking out, which it's not quite as nice as fossil hunting on a beach, but it is a good sort of fossil hunting in its own right. Wait, have you found anything really exciting when you've been doing it? If you, you know, you've been in the lab late at night and suddenly you're like, oh my God, I wasn't expecting this. <laughs> not quite. So. <laughs> The sadly, I, I was on the lookout a lot. So <laughs> oh, no. The samples I was looking at, um, they've previously been looked at for things called phosphatocopenes, which are these tiny, tiny, again, millimetre-sized um, arthropod fossils. And they're bivalved arthropods of a sort. If you know about ostracods, they look a bit like them, but they're not, crucially. <laughs> <laughs> for, the, for those um, of you, for those of our viewers and listeners who do not know what any of those organisms are, let me yeah. help. Let me help quickly. They are related to shrimps. They look yep. like baked beans, and they're tiny. <laughs> they tiny are little things. Tiny, tiny baked beans um, is exactly what these things look like. Um, and in the Cumley limestones, which are the rocks that I was working on for my PhD. Um, you find these phosphatocopenes, these tiny baked beans, with little soft parts preserved. So their little legs preserved, their gill structures, and um, yeah, huge, you get a huge amount of really interesting paleobiological information out of these things. Uh, so it's really good when you find them, but they're quite rare. So when I say rare, I mean there have been maybe a I was going to say a handful, but a handful of these things would be a lot. Yeah. A head or two of these have come out of the company of limestones. But how many elephants is that, Tom? Ooh. <laughs> Maybe, ooh, let's think. Maybe about a hundredth of an elephant's toenail, should we say? I'll take it. Oh. I'll take it. <laughs> All right. <laughs> you mentioned the limestone group that these um, mm. rocks are that you're working on come from. Where in the world is this? And did you collect them yeah. yourself? So sadly, no, I didn't collect them myself. Um, they were collected from the, uh, well, from a trench actually dug in a, in a very helpful and friendly farmer's field in uh, Shropshire, uh, in the Welsh Blacklands. Um, the Cumley limestones have been known for quite a long time. Um, there's a really nice, still excellent piece of work um, in the 1920s, or several pieces of work in the 19, late 10s and early 20s. Um, documenting what was coming out of there. And there were excavations all across that, sort of the Welsh Borderlands area, the Shropshire area, um, including Cumley Quarry and a few trench localities. And Cumley Quarry, the limestones are almost entirely gone now. Um, and it's triple SI for, I think it's a triple SI for modern ecology reasons. 
Um, so collecting from there, if you can avoid it, is, is best avoided. It's a triple um, side on. Oh, sorry, yes. <laughs> a site of special scientific interest. It's a designation for uh, protecting particularly important or interesting uh, sites in, certainly in England and Wales. I assume it applies in Scotland, but I don't know the law. Um, is it? Uh, I, I could be know. completely wrong, but I think this is a, a UN thing or like an EU was, thing. Yeah, it's pretty big. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, basically, I should know this. I have a degree in this. It basically means don't take your geological hammers and smash up the rock. Bingo. <laughs> yeah, very much um, so. You mentioned these papers are in the 10s and the 20s, which is a very mm. many elephants ago. But <laughs> I, I, the samples that this... Oh, well, surely not. They're, they're relatively recent. Well, they're yeah, from the so Cambrian, surely. So they're 500 million years old. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so my PhD supervisor um, and well, actually my, my collection, I was lucky enough to have seven PhD supervisors. Which, yeah, which was... Uh, wow! Wow! <laughs> oh I'll tell you God. about that in a minute. I'll tell you about that in a minute. They were, they were fantastic. Um, but yeah, so I was looking enough to have seven, and they were involved um, a couple of years before I started my PhD in sort of just going out and getting a bit more material from these localities and trying to rediscover where some of these localities were, mostly looking for these phosphatocopenes, um, which I told you about a little bit earlier. And they, there's some great photos of various supervisors like knee deep in trenches and hauling large blocks of stone out of this thing and um, so they all got collected in was that 2010-2011 uh, oh no a bit before that 2008-9 I think and then worked on 2010-11 um, and they were then stored in the British Geological Survey just up the road from Leicester where I did my PhD so it was easy to go up and sample from from their collection there. And we unpick the seven PhD supervisors for a second. Yeah. Oh, I feel like that's quite a lot of management. Yeah, I feel like, so we've already had one person in the chat saying that sounds like a lot of trouble arranging a meeting. But what I want to know is, is having seven supervisors, you know, like the rhyme about magpies, like one for sorrow, two for joy, three for a girl, four for, is that what this situation is like? What's seven? Seven for a secret never to be told, I believe. I think, is that right? I Ooh, believe wow. so. Goodness. Uh, no, it was, so I was given a lot of warnings about having lots of supervisors. For, fortunately for me, none of those warnings sort of came true. I had a very, very good, well-balanced team of supervisors who have a overlapping, but not sort of toe-stepping interests and expertise. So it was a very, very complimentary group of supervisors. Um, so, yeah, that, it all worked very well, though I think we only ever had two whole team meetings, I think. Probably fair enough. But isn't, yeah. this, isn't that interesting, though, because you only have two meetings, I guess, with seven people, but nowadays, post-COVID pandemic, you do everything over Zoom, so it'd be easy. Well, exactly, yeah. Be mm. easy. Yeah. Like I say, really I, have, I have like six people involved in my current project that are closely involved. We've had more than two meetings, and it's only been like six months. <laughs> yeah. So I've got a good question here, which kind of harks back a little bit um, to what we were talking about earlier. Don't say elephants. What? Don't oh, say elephants. Now you just confuse me. <laughs> coin. It's about coin. Oh. Hi, ladies and gentlemen. I am very sorry. Uh, so we have a question from the saber who said it. Who said that? Given that we don't have many rocks. How much do you think is still unknown slash lost about the Cambrian? Which, as a taphonomist, is a question very close to my heart. Ooh, how much is unknown? An awful lot. Yeah. Tell me exactly how much is unknown, Tom Hearing. <laughs> well, <laughs> how much is unknown? A lot. Uh, quantifying that, no. Um, but a good, it's a good question. It's always worth thinking about. How much is lost, I think, is an even better question. Because, yeah, so I've heard from people who should know these things, I think, uh, that around about 5% of geological time might actually be represented in the rock record, something on that order. 
Yeah, I think that's probably quite accurate. I think I think that as a taphonomist, I would probably say that about like if we're talking about biological content, about one percent of all animals that have ever animal species that have ever existed ever are probably in the fossil record, give or take. So there's a lot missing. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. There's definitely a lot missing. How you know what's missing as well? That's a that's a question that I find a bit troubling, I think. Mm. I mean, it's, it's a question we should ask and we should always be asking. I mean, I think it, the, the way to look at that um, in a slightly different context is that we have, well, we have what's left of the planet Earth, uh, which is around at the moment. And we're still discovering species, you know, every single day, hundreds of species are being found fish and insects and in the rainforest and in in uh the oceans and in rivers and even in the uk they're still finding new species all the time so it's you know if that's happening now when we can walk around suitably spaced due to covid restrictions then imagine how difficult that is when you have preservational biases involved and then on top of that as well like collecting biases like people aren't necessarily collecting all the different types of rock that I'm now I'm straying into Emma's research territory and, and Chris. she's eyeballing me. <laughs> Got my beauties on you. Yeah, it's it's this it's 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 simultaneously like for me horrifically worrying mm. and also amazing that that yeah. that idea that, that, that we have this incredible archive of um, of information. I'm kind of unlike anything else at all really i think mean, the closest thing you really have to the fossil record or the rock record is something like astronomy where you can look back in time but through distance and space um and you, you just have such a narrow window into looking back on all this stuff and it, it's that simultaneous thing of being like oh, i wish i wish i knew the things that were hidden in that 99 percent of stuff that we've lost but at the same time, it's pretty amazing we have that 1%. It's just such an incredible resource mm. to be able to, especially now that we're in, in, which I'm sure we can go into in a minute, this really exciting age in paleontology where we can start using computers and modeling techniques and other things to start scraping back these extra little pieces of data that we might have lost otherwise. Yeah. Um, being able to start extrapolating that out in a, in a way that is reliable good extremely challenging but also extremely ex- exciting and just just amazing to think that people are able to do it anyway sorry that went very kind of this like is crying. this has oh. gone very deep and meta, so <laughs> let's uh let's oh, rein dude. it back in before we all get lost in deep time and um uh so i i would like i've got a small bone to pick with you tom hearing so for those of you who don't know tom tom and i did our phds together we are we we shared an office for many happy he said inverted <laughs> commas years um you talked you said you used acetic acid i thought you used some pretty scary acids in the lab no, you no, didn't use no, scary no, acids no, no, no. well i wrote loads of notes about the scary acids that you guys use so i want to talk about scary acids go for it but the person you need for that is my main phd supervisor dr harvey who deals with all sorts of terror, well, one sort of terrifying acid, but it's terrifying enough to cover a whole range of scary things. Uh, I, stay, I steered and still steer well clear of that. Yes. So the scary acid that we're talking about is hydrofluoric acid, which mm. sometimes can be used to dissolve fossils out of rocks. And I was under the assumption, obviously incorrectly, that Tom used those acids, but apparently, all of my research today was for Nout. So just excuse me one second while I rip that out of my notebook. Well, I wouldn't say it's for Nout. It's always good to know about these scary acids because <laughs> it can be used to dissolve fossils out of rocks. My favorite fact about it is that it can be used to dissolve bones out of skin without affecting the skin. That, that is, is what terrifying. I wanted to talk to you about. <laughs> yes. That is why I don't touch it with a barge pole. So, yeah. so hydrofluoric acid, um is pretty scary and but but i will say has a very bad reputation because it was used in breaking bad in breaking bad they used it to dissolve the bodies 
which is an absolute error because hydrofluoric uh, acid would not be uh, very good for dissolving human bodies, but uh, it is used in process. And I wrote loads of interesting notes about what happened to people when they got hydrofluoric acid poured on themselves. Long story short, it's not nice uh, and you die. But what's really interesting is you don't, you don't get like burns necessarily on your skin. So sometimes, I'm very sorry, I have to interrupt this train of thought because I can see rabbits jumping around <laughs> in the back of Chris Dean's Zoom shot. And sorry. people in the chat are now starting to notice that there are rabbits <laughs> bouncing really, around. I'm, yes. I'm, they've been chewing on things. They're going wild. I'm sure, I swear that podcast listeners are going to hear this little like... <laughs> Multiple people have commented on on the rabbits. I'm <laughs> I'm very right. sorry, podcast listeners, but I can assure you there is one very cute black rabbit and one white and black rabbit that are <laughs> bouncing around behind Christine. As so, you guys started talking about acids and like hushed voices, Mouse just leapt to the side <laughs> of the room, and I was like, a really important topic, but also, oh my god, it's so cute. <laughs> I'm slightly worried that the rabbits might be listening about hydrofluoric acid and whether it can be used to dissolve bodies and be looking at Chris and be thinking, hey. I uh, wouldn't put it past them. They, <laughs> they, they plot. They definitely scheme. It's like, uh, it's like Jurassic Park. One, one comes from one way and the other does the pincer movement. Well, before we dis dissolve into rabbit anarchy, uh, Let's get back to, to a little bit about your research. So once you've found these fossils and you've got them out of the rock with the acetic acid, one question that we've had is how do you fit that in with climate models? Where do climate models come into all of this? Yeah, really good question. Um, so what you get from these fossils are a snapshot in space and time. You'll get essentially a single data point. I was going to say from a single fossil, you don't, you need tens to a couple of hundred individual fossils to get that data point. Um, but from one location at one time in the geological past. And that's great, but it's a bit like, it's a little bit like getting um, a weather report from Birmingham city center today. What does that tell you about the climate of the whole world right now. Something, but not a huge amount. Now, if you can get enough bits of data through time or in space at one time, then you can start to use those data points to ground truth, um, to work out which models are, which climate models are accurate and which models are accurate for that point and for what other parameters. So you put a whole load of parameters into uh, a climate model to start it going. You put in things like the carbon dioxide level, the distribution of the continents. Um, you can do things like the orbital parameters. So where, how Earth is orbiting the sun and what Earth itself is doing in terms of tilting on its axis. You put a whole range of those things in and test which of those best fit the geological data that you've got. And inevitably, you won't end up with a single unique solution. You'll end up with a few solutions, some of which are more plausible than others for various different reasons. For instance, if it's a distribution of the continents that changes the model output, you might have particular reasons for thinking that one continent was at the South Pole at a particular time, or not at the South Pole at a particular time, that sort of thing. So combining them means that you can go from models, which would otherwise be essentially just a, a guess at what conditions might have been like, and data which tell you what conditions were like at a particular point at a particular time. You can try and build up a global picture from the combination of those two that's hopefully somewhat accurate. No, hopefully, and lots of caveats apply. So what was the climate of the Cambrian like? <laughs> was it warm? Yes. Um, warm and... Sorry, I should have rephrased my question. How, what were the hot, dry, warm, wet fields, please? <laughs> <laughs> so hard to say with any uh, sort of numerical 
accuracy, but warm and warm in a similar way to more recent greenhouse intervals in Earth's climate history. So you can think about um, the, <coughs> excuse me, you can think about the late Jurassic, early Cretaceous, um, <coughs> excuse me, goodness, frog in my throat, um, or say the early, uh, the early Paleocene, um, and more recent geological time periods that we know a bit more about because we have a lot more data. Well, we know a lot more about because we have a lot more data. Um, it seems like the early Cambrian world was similar to those. So not wildly hot, but definitely greenhouse, warm, very little, if any, permanent polar ice. Um, and quite, we think, quite a shallow, what we call latitudinal temperature gradient. So... What the heck is that? Yeah. <clears throat> so latitudinal temperature gradient is simply the difference in temperature between the equator and the poles. So poles generally cold, equator generally warm, but how much difference there is in those two temperatures is latitudinal temperature gradient. And generally in warmer worlds, it's the poles that warm up faster. We're starting to see this in the modern world even, which is a scary event in and of itself. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, that's what we think. However, I will caveat this with the fact that we have really quite, we have generally sparse data and we have very few quantitative data points. A lot of this is built up from distribution of rocks that reflect the, the climate that certain rocks need certain climates to form under. So you either need you know, high temperatures, high precipitation to form high, high rainfall to form some rocks, other rocks, uh, so glacial type rocks, you need glacial conditions to form. So they can tell you something about the climate and from those and models, we think generally a, a low latitude on temperature gradient, generally a warm world. There's a lot of nodding from all three of us. We're all like, we're all like nodding, like, ooh. <laughs> nodding at both the information and the uh, skill at which it was presented. I'm a bit in awe. <laughs> when I tried to explain climate models, I'm like, uh, you know what, they're right, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> bit hot, bit cold. Yeah. Well, that, that's a good question. What is the difference between weather and climate? Um, well, I'll, I'll, I'll open that to the floor. Like Emma, if you want to answer that, you're also oh, welcome to answer that because your eyebrows like... went your eyebrows went very high. Would you like to take the floor, Tom? It is you who's a special guest. No, I'm quite happy for you. Ah, <laughs> now they're going to fight over who talks about what. <laughs> well, I believe at the simplest level, weather is local conditions that happen on tiny timescales, but climate is what happens generally across larger timescales and across wider areas. Tom, do you want to add to that? Yeah, that's broadly, broadly it. Um, you can slightly quantify it. Usually we think about climate as 30 year or longer patterns and trends. And like you say, regional or global scale uh, effects rather than what happened out the back of my house last Tuesday, that sort of thing. Yeah. So yeah, short time scale, weather, long time scale, climate. So when certain orange-faced, overweight world leaders tweet, well, it's snowing outside, there's no such thing as global warming. They're, they're very stupid because they're confusing weather with climate. That is, I'm afraid, complete horseshit. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Whoa. this is... Whoa. Wow, I'll some... have to get the bleep machine out tonight. <laughs> <laughs> I, think I, I is... promise it's my one and only. But <laughs> that is a significant bugbear. Um, yeah. It is so symptomatic. Just exactly that tiny sentence is so symptomatic yes. of a climate scientist who's had to deal with that so often for so mm. long. I totally feel you. And I work on really old climate that pretty much no one in media or that sort of circle would care about. But the whole debate filters through and pervades the, well, it's not even, it's not a debate, the whole problem essentially yeah. filters through. Naseba yeah. in chat has nailed it. 
Uh, she writes that weather tells you what to wear today and climate tells you what clothes to have in your wardrobe. That's Amazing. Stealing it. I love it. That is pretty good. I really like that. Nasaba, you can have one paleo party point, which means that you are currently second in the leaderboard. Who's <laughs> <laughs> number one? I can't remember. I offered someone else. I think I gave I think I gave Hannah some paleo points at the beginning. I've not I've not been keeping up with it, if I'm brutally honest. But Nasaba, right. you're in second place, so keep it up. <laughs> Oh dear, oh dear, oh dear. I derailed to something slightly more upbeat. <laughs> this is, this um, is, yep. <laughs> in the background of Tom's video, I, I can see very clearly an image that I uh, notice as Dippy, the dinosaur. And I believe Dippy was at your wedding. Is this true? <laughs> yes, Dippy was at our wedding. Um, so could, before we go any further, Tom, I'm going to make you explain this. What is Dippy and why is Dippy important to our international listeners? Mm-hmm. I feel like I, I landed you in that yeah, one. You Sorry, absolutely, so. you absolutely <laughs> dropped him in it. So Dippy is the Diplodocus uh, skeleton that used to stand proudly in the entrance hall. Was it the entrance hall, the Great Hall? It was the Great Hall, the hall of the Natural History Museum in London until they decided that they'd rather have a whale hanging above them, waiting to drop on unsuspecting dinner guests. I'm sure it won't. I'm sure they put it up beautifully and sturdily. Um, yeah, paleo, paleo party accepts no liability for Tom <laughs> Thomas Hearing's comments. <laughs> no, I love the I love looking at the whale there. Actually, it's, yeah, it's a it's a very good. It's beautiful. Anyway, um, Dippy then went on tour, and I believe the tour has now finished. I'm not sure if it's still. Yeah. Who knows? So, uh, Dippy Chris, to... knows Chris, Chris knows because Chris knows because Chris is nodding. <laughs> but people, but it. people on the podcast can't hear Chris yeah. nodding, so it's fine. Jeez. I have to. I uh, tangentially for work here. I work in the Natural History Museum, and I hear the the, the coordinations of guiding guiding Dippy back back oh. to the museum. And so <gasps> I think the process has begun. So do they use a do they use a lead? Or uh, or is it or is Dippy ridden? Oh, he's trained. Oh, he, you know he knows what to do. He just follows people. He's like, what's the point? They just leave breadcrumbs on the floor. <laughs> Dippy just follows. Anyway, nice. please continue your story, Tom. <laughs> um, yeah, so Dippy Dippy went on tour around various museums uh, around the UK and spent some time um, quite early on in the. Back the first museum they went to, the Dorchester Museum, Dorset County Museum in Dorchester, um, which is where my parents live. It's where I and my wife, my now wife, grew up. It's still very, very strange saying that. <laughs> really lovely. Um, and so we got married in the register office at the top of the hill and ran down the hill to the museum and to. Well, Dippy didn't come to you. What a lazy bugger. <laughs> He didn't leave the breadcrumbs out. Yeah, no breadcrumbs, you cheapskate. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not sure he could have fitted through the door of the register office, but he could have poked his head in at the window. Yeah. Like yeah. But yeah, so we had a nice little mini reception with Dippy and yeah, it was very, yeah, very sweet. The perfect paleo wedding. Everybody is uh, trying to reach that bar now. <laughs> yeah. Or alternatively, there are hundreds of thousands of people listening, obviously, who are just like, nerds. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, An important point to mention is that your wife is not a paleontologist and went along with this, no No. problem. No, Sherry is not a paleontologist, um, but she (laughs) seemed very happy to have a a wedding with a dinosaur. Excellent. (laughs) I presume you were talking about Dippy and not yourself there. (laughs) <laughs> uh, you probably have to have to ask her that. <laughs> well i think we've we've covered lots of things um and i think it's that time in the show where i ask my ridiculous and pointless questions uh, to our host and to my fellow panel peoples wait i said hosts i meant guests and panel peoples so tom works on paleoclimates and so my question is that if you had to go on holiday to any period in deep time where would you go and why 
I'll, I'll, I'm going to throw it to Emma first because Emma knew this question was coming. So she's had some time to prepare. Given extra time to think about this didn't help in the slightest. <laughs> I really didn't. I, I'm not a big kind of like beach goer. So I was thinking originally I'd like something balmy, like maybe something like the Carboniferous or something like that. But I've done a complete 180 and I think I'd prefer an ice house world, maybe an ice age, a bit of snow, some cool beasties. So I think I'd have to go for the most recent ice age. But you hate the cold. I like snow though. <laughs> Problematic with, with yeah, a little bit, but I'll, I'll I'll survive surely. If you can take a hot water bottle, I'm sure you'll be fine. Yes, if I can take the hot water bottle that I'm currently wearing. <laughs> is that one of those really long hot water bottles? It is. Yeah. No, it's not. It's just that Emma's really small, so it doesn't look massive. <laughs> Emma's sure. actually the size of a borrower. <laughs> All right, Chris, I'm going to throw it to you next. I'm going to, I'm going to throw you under the bus. I, I've got this nailed. I know Ooh. exactly what I would do. I, I'm not normally a big beach goer, but I would go to the Western Interior Seaway, which is mm-hmm. a large inland sea that I studied for my PhD. Um, the stretch from Alaska all the way down to the Gulf of Mexico from about 100 to about 60 million years ago. Um, so it's about four and a half thousand kilometers long, one and a half thousand kilometers wide, but only about 200 meters deep. So it's a super, super weird environment, but the eastern edge of it in America um, was very shallow and gentle and probably had big sandy shores, probably dinosaurs knocking around. I think it'd be quite nice and it'd be nice to see something that I'd studied. So I think, I think I'd go for that. Sounds pretty, pretty, pretty good. Go on then, Tom. Hit us with your holiday Sorry. spot. Well, I <laughs> I had a fairly immediate, I think Emma's right, you have to go with your gut reaction for this. And I had a fairly immediate response, which was the cryogenian, um, which is interesting. Even the Cambrian. Um, so uh, what is the age of the cryogenian? I don't even know that. Uh, 700 million years-ish. <laughs> one of the major ice age events was set about 740. Sorry, I just... And the time scale that I have here, it doesn't go far, that, yeah, that far I, back. I just literally, I just, I was about to say for our, for our listeners, not for our viewers, but for our listeners, when I, when, when Tom started to think about when the cryogenian was, Emma darted like a bullet straight <laughs> into her drawer and whipped out a geological time scale so quickly that it blurred on my screen. <laughs> it's a laminated... Geological timeline for those of you who are not. It's actually from the University of Leicester. Oh, <laughs> didn't steal it; just happened to somehow have it. It's probably yeah. mine because that's probably. where I did my PhD. <laughs> um, so you did. It does steal not it. have the cryogenian, though. Bottom line: apologies, no. cannot help. That's all right. It's certainly around about seven hundred and forty million years ago, but it's quite a large interval of time. And you might have been might be able to guess what it what it's characterized by, cryo uh, prefix, is characterized by potentially snowball earth glaciation. So glaciations covering all or most of Earth's surface. And there's quite a bit of debate as to whether they were really global, whether they, how far sort of, how far towards the equator these glaciations reached how hard they were. Was it a sort of hard snowball or was it a slush ball sort of situation? There's a whole host of weird sort of colloquial terminology that's developed around this. Um, Apparently I'd like to go back just to see what it was actually like, but partly because I really do like the cold and there's nothing I can think of better than a really nice cold earth. (laughs) It'd be really good. I'll share my hot water bottle with you. (laughs) (laughs) Oh dear, oh dear. Well, Thomas. Well, hmm. originally I was going to say Carboniferous because I worked on the Carboniferous and it was pretty interesting to see what the Carboniferous was like. It's pretty warm, pretty swampy, lots of trees, you know, whatevs. Then I thought about being witty and being like, oh, maybe I'd go back to 66.1 million years ago to the Yucatan region of, of North America in Mexico and have a look at the large crater that had just formed and witnessed the destruction of the dinosaurs. Um, but then I thought, actually, do you know what I'd really like to see? 
So I would like to be at the top of the what is now currently the Rock of Gibraltar six million years ago. So a little bit of background here, a bit boring, but basically about six million years ago, the Mediterranean was a massive basin, but because of the way that Europe and Africa had collided, there was no water there. And then something happened around six million years ago where the Strait of Gibraltar effectively opened and allowed what is now the Atlantic Ocean in and flooded the entire Mediterranean basin, created the Mediterranean Sea. And it's what separated islands like Cyprus and Malta and Crete and all of these places from each other and allowed all these weird mammals to evolve and whatnot. But I would love to be at the Rock of Gibraltar when that kicks off, because that would be wild. Like, it'd be, like, just the most epic surf. Like, just, you ride that for kilometres. I mean, you probably... I wonder how big the wave was. Like, honestly, it must have been just the coolest thing to watch. I bet it was, like, completely anticlimactic. But, <laughs> excuse the pun. But anticlimactic in that it's probably just a tiny little trickle, a little tiny little puddle getting bigger. I'm I'm pretty sure there's a lot of geological evidence that shows it was pretty intense. Oh, never mind me then. Um, I take my pun back and I walk away. But I'm oh, I could I could be wrong. I'm desperately googling now to find to see if there is uh, if it is actually I am probably wrong. I am not a geologist. Uh, this was the case for the um uh the English Channel. It was carved in the space of a couple of weeks, I think. That's um, mad. When the last ice sheet this big ice dam that broke all water washed down carved yeah. out. you can still see all the scours if you use uh lidar um, and look on the the ocean or the channel floor you can see all the big scouring structures from the water rushing through that's pretty that cool. So cool and like but one thing to one thing to think about so sorry, I have to say this. Someone in the comments has said geologically intense, much like my paleo lectures in the first year. <laughs> <laughs> I feel your pain. Anyway, uh, but one thing to think about, though, is that uh, in the North Sea and in the Channel, sometimes when the fishing boats are dredging to like get sea life off the bottom of the sea which is really sad but you know let's, let's not go into that sometimes they dredge up fossil remains so sometimes they'll dredge up like neanderthal skulls and like bits of ichthyosaur and fossils from the chalk and, and what, what have you and uh it's kind of the same in the mediterranean like we find all these we find lots of fossils like uh animals like elephants and whatnot would have migrated across from europe down to africa and back and forth so actually maybe it wouldn't have been such a cool sight making this conversation go full circle just seeing this herd of elephants having a great time swanning across the <laughs> basin just to get suddenly just absolutely obliterated by a giant tsunami so maybe uh maybe i've created a monster <laughs> <laughs> oh no now i'm now i'm questioning myself oh, just God. going back to the the channel example there's a fantastic outcrop in uh, i think it's sangat in northern france where you can stand on a beach looking up at a cliff. And in the cliff, you can see a cliff, fossil cliff in the cliff. It's at 90 degrees. Whoa. She's got this beautiful Whoa. profile. And then chalk cliff building up. Um, and it's just completely 90 degrees to, uh, it was essentially just cut through when the channel flooded. Oh. Yeah. That's so incredible. So you're standing, yeah, blows, this is the whole, processes still going on and uniformitarianism and you look at it there and turn around and it's happening yeah we've wrapped everything up we've wrapped yeah. it all up look at this it was almost like we planned it also just imagine being like a human and a, like you know someone living at that time and living in the sort of dover region and like you know you've just walked across from the main what we would now consider mainland europe and then a week later you're like ah <laughs> Guys, <laughs> what what do we do now? <laughs> anyway, well, on that bombshell, I think that's a great a great place to to leave. Oh wow, we've covered so much. It's you know, it's been a roller coaster. But anyway, uh, Paleo Party will be back in two weeks. Um, but don't worry. In the meantime, you can catch us on Spotify, YouTube, Anchor, and pretty much anywhere where you can download podcasts. 
Our website is, uh, we update it every week with who's coming on and there's lots of information about our next guest. And we also put everyone's Upgoer 5 on there. So we'll be getting Tom's, well, I was about to say epic Upgoer 5, but rather confusing Upgoer 5 <laughs> using lots of wets and warms and dries and whatnot. Um, there's lots of useful links on our website. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Don't forget to subscribe here. Chances are you probably are already subscribed on Twitch. But with that, I'd just like to thank very much our very special guest, uh, Tom. You've been great. And we hope that everyone will join us for the next Paleo Party. I think mini round of applause. Yeah. Thank you very much. And uh, with that, I think we're going to end the stream just there. Goodbye, everyone. Bye.